0: Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by Comcast. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, and we're looking back at this same week last year, the week that America changed. This is our COVID-19 Decision Maker series, conversations about some of the most consequential decisions made this time last year. Today, we look at the decision to send over 650,000 students home for remote learning with Los Angeles Superintendent Austin Butner. On the Tuesday of that week, the LA Unified School District's board gave Butner emergency authorization to take action in the interest of health and safety. By Friday, March 13th, an announcement was made that physical schools would close, a decision that remains in effect today. Austin Butner, who leads the nation's second largest school district, takes us inside of that week in March. He tells us about when he really made the decision, how the district stood up remote learning and one of the largest food distribution programs in the nation's history, all with very imperfect information about the coronavirus and in the face of community criticism that he was overreacting. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Austin Butner, Austin can you walk us through how you made the decision to send students home? Discussions and thought started back in February. You know, we started tracking the first case of
1: COVID in Los Angeles, the second case of COVID in Los Angeles. Two days later, there was the 14th case in Los Angeles. And my discussions at that point in time with health authorities, state, local, and other people I just knew in that world was, we're at this tipping point. You know, Two to 14 is a bad sign. If 14 goes to 28, we'll be in a pandemic. And this is the way epidemiology works. And so that led us down the path to say it's coming. We have a day, a week to plan for it. We don't have weeks to plan for it. And so starting really the 1st of March, we laid the foundation for emergency authority. So the board bestowing emergency authority and me, we decided, I decided to close schools before there was an occurrence in school. At the time, there was somewhat controversial. New York was still struggling through the, well, we don't have that many. We took a different tact, which was, we don't know how bad this could be and health and safety comes first at this point in time. So as it became apparent to us there was enough community spread, I made the decision at that point having been given emergency authority that Friday the 13th would be our last day. Not a decision we ever made before because every other closure for a fire or something like that, you know you're coming back. You may not know the dates, it might be a week, it might be 10 days, but you're coming back. Here, we couldn't see the closure. Once a virus is out of control, the only way it gets back in control is through a massive testing and tracing effort or a vaccination, or everybody's got it. I mean, there's only some epidemiological outcomes, and we didn't see a path to any of those, so we felt it could be for quite some time. Our hope at that time had been we'd be back in school by fall 2020. Didn't prove to be the case. We put plans in place. We put the testing in place. Obviously, the surge subsumed all of those things. But it's an enormous burden knowing that you're changing people's lives quite significantly for an unknown period of time. And that uncertainty, I think, we still bear to this day. So woke up the morning of the 13th knowing that we would close schools that day. We would announce closure. On Monday, everybody would be on a, off on a different journey. Our colleagues would work in schools, the families we serve, and their children who would be normally in our schools. When we got together, I got together to inform the board, I made a decision to close schools effective uh, that day. It was sober, uh, sobering. Uh, There was a few questions. Are we sure? Is this the time? Is the virus really what we think? Because none of us had perfect information, but we had enough at that point, I felt, to make the decision. And then it became logistical. Where do we go from here? Are our schools prepared? How do we maintain the connection? And what does the week or two or three or month ahead look like? because we had talked about it enough before. It was not a surprise to any of our board. We quickly pivoted. Uh, I said to the board, we're gonna have to truncate this conversation a little bit because my next communication, I need to get ready to talk to everybody who works with us. They need to understand where we're going. We need to make sure our colleagues who do the work with students and families know where we're going. Uh, And that's 86,000 people for whom this is gonna be maybe a bit of a surprise, certainly concerning, and they're the connection to the students and then we need to communicate very very quickly to the families we serve. All we knew at that point in time was for the safety of the school community, we couldn't bring students back into the classroom. you know families they they didn't necessarily have the same set of information we did uh, so there were dissenters. think of the public, the national discourse this will be gone in a day. the sun will make it go away. you know click our heels twice and Dorothy will take us back to Kansas so, the lack of clarity in understanding the situation we were in. If we close schools for a fire, everyone can see the fire. We closed because of this unknown and at that point in time, unknowable virus, which we thought presented an existential threat of sorts, but we didn't know it with conviction. There were families who felt we shouldn't be closed. There were folks who work in schools. There were board members who said, well, we're not ready to do this. We need more evidence. We need more science. But it was clear the science pointed in a direction. If all that had happened was we'd erred on the side of caution, we would have had everybody back to March 20th, I guess, and had a little celebration. It didn't turn out that way. At that point in time, we actually hoped that we'd be able to carry forward another week because we were feverishly planning. We were buying computers. We were arranging internet access. We were stocking the warehouse with food so we could continue the safety net. We had to call, that, call the vote on that in effect and say, okay, we're done, whatever planning we're done, this is the most we can do. We don't think it's going to be safe to bring students and their teachers and their bus drivers back to school on Monday the 16th. When you're serving high needs communities, high needs students, the last thing we want to do is send them into the wind and say, we'll see in a week or two. I felt if we created a gap between the relationship that they have with their classmates and their current teacher and the current school staff, that that would put kids at risk. We might lose kids. We might lose families. Eighty percent of students live in poverty. More than three quarters of families we serve, someone in the household has lost work, and so we made the decision to train ourselves along the way. The you know vernacular is talked about a lot now. Flying the plane while changing the seats and the wiring in the midst of a thunderstorm, running low on fuel. That's what we were doing as we looked at the closure of schools. We knew we needed to buy a half million computers and figure out a way to keep students connected. We did that. We actually worked through the night with Apple, taking inventory out of their stores across the country. We have said, tell you what, can you pull them out of all your stores? And they did. That's how we got our computers. We have 86,000 employees who work in a bricks and mortar setting, most of whom aren't connected, and their work is not connected via the Internet. Figure out how we were going to operate schools, whether they're online or in person, via the it's an enormous challenge for us. And so those early weeks in March, we're putting that foundation in place so that when we made the decision, we're actually able to continue to provide instruction. So we announced the decision March 13th, made it much earlier in the week. When I announced the decision, we reminded the community we're gonna keep doing the three things that we've done in time of the morning. The first is support learning needs of students. The second is the support and safety net we provide for working families. And then the last is we made a solemn commitment. We're going to protect the health and safety of the school community. On the food, we knew we're a safety net. In ordinary times, we provide millions of meals weekly for our students. And we couldn't pull that safety net. So I decided we're going to, by Wednesday, be able to provide meals every day to students, children, adults, no questions asked. And at that point in time, there was no path to do that. The federal government said, well, we might reimburse you for children meals because you run the school meal programs, kind of maybe looks like that, but there were no rules. Adults was way out of bounds. Uh, and certainly the notion that you would do it without asking anybody who they were, there's no path or plan or playbook for that. But I just felt we are part of that safety net. If we were in a position to do it, we would find a way. We did this in an industrial scale. We rented refrigerated trucks outside of all of our schools. We have several million square feet of warehouse that we use and had to rent to do this. So we Pivoted uh, emergency relief effort, if you will, overnight. And we hoped at that point in time that the cavalry would arrive. We just thought, okay, we're first. If something's on fire, you go in, hoping the fire department right behind you. Didn't turn out that way. So we've continued to do this without support from the city, county or state. Monday the 16th happened. We didn't miss a day. I'm very proud of it. 18th of March, we started providing meals. Since that day, we've served more than 110 million meals to children and adults. We've also provided diapers and baby wipes. We've provided sports equipment for children, books.
0: When you think of the decisions that you made that week in March, how many people do you believe were impacted by them?
1: Probably close to 3 million people. And think of them in three groups. We've got about 650,000 students of all ages, from two-year-olds and and infants in early ed centers to 65-year-olds in adult education, everything in between. We have 86,000 employees and their families and the families of students and staff. So probably
0: 3 million, 4 million people, something like that. Austin Buettner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. In a moment, we'll be back to revisit a scene from this exact date in March 2020, a White House coronavirus task force briefing that hinted at where the days and months were headed. Welcome back. As we reflect on how this one week in March changed the fabric of our society, we want to revisit something else that happened on this date a year ago.
2: We just attended a
1: a uh, very important task force meeting on the virus that everybody is talking about all over the world, no matter where you go, that's what's on people's minds, and we are going to take care of and have been taking care of the American public and uh, the American economy.
0: That was President Trump speaking at the White House Coronavirus Task Force press briefing.
2: Uh, a brief word about the Grand Princess. Uh, the Grand Princess uh, uh, has uh, has docked this afternoon in Oakland, California. Uh, at a commercial dock.
0: As Vice President Pence said, this was the day the Grand Princess cruise liner docked, sending 3,000 people into quarantine. That same day, New Jersey declared a state of emergency, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell more than 7% in its worst trading session since the great financial crisis. Across the nation, known cases totaled more than 500, the rollout of testing was a major national concern, and community spread was only recently being acknowledged.
2: We're working with communities like the Seattle area, or like portions of California, New York, and Florida that have um, what we call community spread, a concentration of coronavirus cases. But we directed our team to come up with helpful recommendations for every American, every American family, every American business and school and uh, uh, if uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci step forward, they can outline that for you.
0: Those guidelines, shared online later in the day, included advisories like, quote, use video conferencing for meetings when possible, and, if possible, provide a protected space for vulnerable household members. The Pentagon was already practicing social distancing, according to another headline that day. Meanwhile, media queries about Trump's exposure, testing, and risk were already escalating.
2: Thank you, Mr. President. Has oh. he been tested?
0: He been tested?
2: Uh, have you been tested? I have not been tested for the coronavirus. Has
0: the president? Uh, uh, Has the president been tested? Uh, president been tested? He's, uh, been in, he's been in contact with
2: people who were in proximity to somebody who had the virus. Let me uh, be sure and get you an answer to that. I honestly don't know the answer to the question. Uh, but...
0: Later this week, we'll hear from Dr. Fauci himself about what was happening inside the task force that week. Big thanks for listening and to the team behind this series. This episode was produced by Naomi Shaven, Tim Shovers, Amy Padula, Alice Wilder, and Alex Sugiora. Research and fact checking by Oriana Gonzalez. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Have a great National Meatball Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.